Reasons why this should be the great work of life. Secondly, I will assign some reasons why Christians must make this the great work of their lives. The importance and necessity of making this our great work will become clear from several considerations. 1. The glory of God is much concerned. Heart sins are very provoking evils to the Lord. Outward sins are sins of great infamy, but heart sins are sins of deeper guilt. How severely has the great God declared His wrath from heaven against heart wickedness! The crime for which the old world stands indicted is heart wickedness. Scripture God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. For which he sent the most dreadful judgments that were ever inflicted since time began. We do not find their murders, adulteries, and blasphemies, though they were defiled with these, particularly alleged against them, but rather the evils of their hearts. What provoked God so much as to give up His special inheritance into the enemy's hand was the evil of their hearts. Scripture, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? Exodus chapter 17, verse 12. Of the wickedness and vanity of their thoughts, God took particular notice. Because of this, the Chaldeans had to come upon them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and teareth them in pieces. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7. For the sin of thoughts, God threw down the fallen angels from heaven, and still keeps them in everlasting chains to the great judgment day. This expression does not obscurely indicate some extraordinary judgment that is reserved for them, like prisoners who have the most irons placed upon them may be supposed to be the greatest felons. What was their sin? Spiritual wickedness. Merely heart evils are so provoking to God that for them He rejects with indignation all the works that some men perform. Their offerings will not be accepted. Scripture, He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 3. In what words could the abhorrence of a creature's actions be more fully expressed by the holy God? Murder and idolatry are not viler in his account than their sacrifices, even though materially these sacrifices are what he himself has appointed. What made their sacrifices so vile? The following words tell us, Their soul delighteth in their abominations. Such is the vileness of mere heart sins that the scriptures sometimes point to the difficulty of pardon for them. The heart of Simon Magus was not right. He had detestable thoughts of God and of the things of God. The apostle begged him to repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Acts chapter 8 verse 21. O then, never slight heart evils, for by these God is highly wronged and provoked. For this reason, let every Christian keep his heart with all diligence. 2. 
The sincerity of our profession of faith depends a lot upon the care we exercise in keeping our hearts. Most certainly, the man who is careless about the attitude of his heart is nothing but a hypocrite in his profession of faith, no matter how religious he appears to be. We have a striking example of this in the history of Jehu. Scripture, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. 2 Kings 10, verse 31. The context gives an account of the great service performed by Jehu against the house of Ahab and Baal, and also of the great temporal reward given him by God for that service, even that his children, to the fourth generation, should sit upon the throne of Israel. Yet in these words, Jehu is censured as a hypocrite. Though God approved and rewarded the work, he still abhorred and rejected the person who did it as hypocritical. What was the hypocrisy of Jehu? He did not give attention to walk in the ways of the Lord with his heart. That is, everything he did was insincere and selfish. Even though the work he did was materially good, because he did not purge his heart from those unworthy, selfish intentions in doing it, he was a hypocrite. And though Simon Magus appeared to be a person that the apostle could not obviously reject, his hypocrisy was quickly discovered. Though he professed piety and associated himself with the Christians, he was a stranger to the shame of heart sins. Scripture, For thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Acts chapter 8, verse 21. It is true, there is a great difference between Christians themselves in their diligence and dexterity about heart work. Some Christians are more conversant with and more successful in it than others. But he who pays no attention to his heart, who is not careful to keep it right before God, is nothing but a hypocrite. Scripture, And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they shew much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. Here was a company of formal hypocrites, as is evident from that expression, as my people. They were like them, but not of them. What made them so? Their outside was fair. Here were reverent postures, high professions, much seeming delight in ordinances. Thou art unto them as a very lovely song. Yes, but for all that, they did not keep their hearts with God in those duties. Their hearts were commanded by their lusts. They went after their covetousness. Had they kept their hearts with God, all would have been well. But in not regarding which way their hearts went in duty, there lay the essence of their hypocrisy. If any upright person should think, I am a hypocrite too, because my heart departs from God many times, I do what I can, yet I cannot keep my heart with God. I answer that the very objection carries in it its own solution. You say, I do what I can, yet I cannot keep my heart with God. Friend, if you do what you can, you have the blessing of an upright heart, though God sees good to help you under the affliction of a disturbed heart. There still remains some wildness in the thoughts and notions of the best Christians to humble them. But if you acknowledge what things can tempt you, and try to oppose them when they come, and have grief and sorrow afterward should you give in, 
you have enough to clear you from the charge of reigning hypocrisy. This precaution is seen partly in memorizing the word in your heart to prevent them. Scripture, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, verse 11. You can prevail partly in your endeavors to engage your heart with God, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 21, and partly in asking for helping grace from God, Psalm 119, verses 36 through 37. It is a good sign to exercise such precaution. And it is an evidence of uprightness to oppose these sins when they first appear, Psalm 119, verse 113. Scripture, I hate vain thoughts. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Your grief also reveals the uprightness of your heart. If with Hezekiah you are humbled by the evils of your heart, you have no reason, from those disorders, to question the integrity of it. But if you allow sin to lodge quietly in your heart, and let your heart habitually and without control wander from God, that is a sad and a dangerous symptom indeed. 3. The beauty of our conversation arises from the heavenly attitude of our spirits. There is a spiritual luster and beauty in the conversation of Christians. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. Christians shine as the lights of the world. But whatever luster and beauty there is in their lives, it comes from the excellency of their spirits, like the candle puts luster on the lantern in which it shines. It is impossible that a disordered and neglected heart could ever produce a well-ordered conversation. Since, as the text observes, the issues or streams of life flow out of the heart as their fountain, it must follow that such as the heart is, the life will be. Therefore, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 says, Abstain from fleshly lusts, having your conversation honest or beautiful, as the Greek word conveys. So says Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. His way denotes the course of his life his thoughts, the attitude of his heart. Therefore, since the course of his life flows from his thoughts or the attitude of his heart, neither will be forsaken. The heart is the source of all actions. These actions are virtually and radically contained in our thoughts. These thoughts become our affections and are quickly displayed in suitable actions. If the heart is wicked, then, as Christ says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Mark the order. First, wanton or revengeful thoughts, then unclean or murderous practices. And if the heart is holy, then it is as with David. Scripture, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Psalm 45, verse 1. Here is a life richly beautified with good works, some ready-made. I speak of the things which I have made, others in the making. My heart is indicting. Both proceed from the heavenly attitude of the heart. Put the heart in proper attitude, and the life will quickly discover that it is so. 
It is not very difficult to discern, by the lives and speech of Christians, what attitudes their hearts are in. Take a Christian with a good attitude, and notice how serious, heavenly, and profitable his life and pious exercises will be. What a lovely companion he is during the performance of it. It would do anyone's heart good to be with him at such a time. Scripture The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. Psalm 37, verses 30 and 31. When the heart is with God and full of God, how dexterously will he suggest spiritual discourse, improving every occasion and advantage to some heavenly purpose? Few words are wasted. What is the reason that the discourses and duties of many Christians are so shallow and unprofitable that their communion both with God and with one another is like a dry stalk? It is because their hearts are neglected. Surely this must be the reason for it. It is an evil to be greatly lamented. Thus, the attracting beauty which used to shine from the conversation of the Christians upon the faces and consciences of the world, which, if it did not attract and bring them in love with the ways of God, at least it left a testimony in their consciences of the excellency of those men and of their ways, is in a great measure lost to the unspeakable harm of religion. Time was when Christians conducted themselves in such a holy manner that the world stood gazing at them. Their life and language were of a different strain from those of others. Their tongues showed them to be Galileans wherever they went. But now, since vain speculations and fruitless controversies have gained so much, and heart work, practical godliness is neglected so much among professing Christians, the case is sadly altered. Their conversation has become like other men's. If they come among you now, they may hear every man speak in his own language. I have little hope to see this evil set right and the credit of devotion repaired until Christians do their first works, until they apply themselves again to heart work. When the salt of heavenly mindedness is cast into the spring, the streams will flow clearer and sweeter. 4. The comfort of our souls depends a lot on the keeping of our hearts. He who is negligent in attending to his own heart is ordinarily a great stranger to assurance and the comforts it offers. Indeed, if the antinomium doctrine were true, which teaches you that there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey, telling you that it is the Spirit who immediately assures you by witnessing your adoption directly without them, then you might be careless of your hearts, yes, strangers to the law, and yet not strangers to comfort. But since both Scripture and experience disprove this, I hope you will never look for comfort in this unscriptural way. I do not deny that it is the work and office of the Spirit to assure you, Yet I confidently affirm that if you ever attain assurance in the ordinary way wherein God dispenses it, you must take care with your own hearts. You may expect your comforts upon easier terms, but I am mistaken if you enjoy them upon any other terms but these. Give all diligence. Prove your own selves. This is the scriptural method. A distinguished writer in his treatise on the covenant 
tells us he knew a Christian who, in the infancy of his Christianity, so vehemently panted for the infallible assurances of God's love that for a long time he earnestly asked for a voice from heaven. Sometimes he even walked alone in the fields, earnestly listening for some miraculous voice from the trees and stones. After many requests and longings were denied, he was shown the better and ordinary way of searching the Word and his own heart. Similarly, another learned person was driven by temptation to the very borders of despair. Finally, after being sweetly calmed and assured, one person asked him how he attained it. He answered, Not by any extraordinary revelation, but by subjecting my understanding to the Scriptures and comparing my heart with them. The Spirit indeed assures us by witnessing our adoption. He witnesses in two ways. One way is objectively, that is, by producing those graces in our souls which are the conditions of the promise. So the Spirit and His graces in us are all one. The Spirit of God dwelling in us is a mark of our adoption. Now, the Spirit can be discerned not in His essence, but in His work in us. To discern these is to discern the Spirit. How these can be discerned without serious searching and diligent watching of the heart I cannot imagine. The other way of the Spirit's witnessing is effectively, that is, by illuminating the soul with a grace-discovering light shining upon His own work. This, in order of nature, follows the former work. He first infuses the grace, and then opens the eye of the heart to see it. Now since the heart is the subject of that infused grace, even this way of the Spirit's witnessing includes the necessity of carefully keeping our own hearts. A neglected heart is so confused and dark that the small amount of grace which is in it is not ordinarily discernible. The most accurate and laborious Christians sometimes find it difficult to discover the pure and genuine workings of the Spirit in their hearts. How then can the Christian, who is comparatively negligent about heart work, be able to discover grace? Sincerity, which is what is looked for, lies in the heart like a small piece of gold on the bottom of a river. He who would find it must stay until the water is clear, and then he will see it sparkling at the bottom. For the heart to be clear and settled, much pain, watching, care, and diligence is required. Also, God does not usually indulge negligent souls with the comforts of assurance. He will not so much as seem to support laziness and carelessness. He will give assurance, but it will be in His own way. His command has joined our care and comfort together. Those who think that assurance may be obtained without work are mistaken. Ah, how many solitary hours have the people of God spent in examining their hearts! How many times have they looked into the Word and then into their hearts! Sometimes they thought they discovered sincerity and were even ready to draw forth the triumphant conclusion of assurance. Then comes a doubt they cannot resolve and destroys it all. They have had many hopes and fears, doubtings and reasonings in their own breasts before they arrived at a comfortable conclusion. But suppose it is possible for a careless Christian to attain assurance. 
it is impossible for him to retain it for a long time, for it is a thousand to one if those whose hearts are filled with the joys of assurance can hold on to those joys unless extraordinary care is used. A little pride, vanity, or carelessness will dash to pieces everything that they have been wearily working a long time for. Therefore, the joy of our life, the comfort of our souls, rises and falls with our diligence in this work to keep our heart with all diligence. 5. The improvement of our graces depends on the keeping of our hearts. I never knew grace to thrive in a careless soul. The habits and roots of grace are planted in the heart. The deeper they are rooted there, the more grace flourishes. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 we read of being rooted in love or grace. Grace in the heart is the root of every gracious word in the mouth and of every holy work in the hand. Psalm 116, verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. It is true Christ is the root of a Christian, but Christ is the originating root, and grace is a root planted and nourished by Christ. Accordingly, as this thrives under divine influences, the acts of grace are more or less fruitful or vigorous. Now, in a heart that is not kept with care and diligence, these enhancing influences are stopped and cut off, and multitudes of vanities break in upon it and devour its strength. The heart is, as it were, the enclosure in which multitudes of thoughts are fed every day. A gracious heart, diligently kept, feeds many precious thoughts of God in a day. Scripture, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. And as the gracious heart nourishes them, so they refresh and feed the heart. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, when I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in the night watches. Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6. But in the disregarded heart, multitudes of vain and foolish thoughts are perpetually working. They drive out those spiritual thoughts of God by which the soul should be refreshed. Besides, the careless heart does not profit by any duty or ordinance it performs or concentrates on, and yet these are the conduits of heaven from which grace is watered and made fruitful. A man may go with a neglectful spirit from rule to rule, live all his days under the best teaching, and yet never see any improvement. For heart neglect is a leak in the bottom. There are not any heavenly influences, however rich, that abide in that soul. Matthew chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. When the seed falls upon the heart which lies open and common like the highway, free for all passengers, the birds come and devour it. Sadly, it is not enough to hear unless we are careful how we hear. A man may pray and never be the better unless he guards how he prays. In a word, all means are blessed to the improvement of grace, according to the care and strictness we use in keeping our hearts in them. 6. The stability of our souls in the hour of temptation depends upon the care we exercise in keeping our hearts. The careless heart 
is easy prey for Satan in the hour of temptation. Satan's principal batteries are raised against the heart. If he wins the heart, he wins everything, for the heart commands the whole man. Alas, how easy it is to conquer a neglected heart! It is as easy to take by surprise such a heart as it is for an enemy to enter a city whose gates are open and unguarded. It is the watchful heart which discovers and suppresses temptation before it becomes strong. Preachers observe this to be the method in which temptations are ripened and brought to their full strength. There is the power that temptation has to provoke our corrupt nature, which is either done by the actual presence of the object or by speculation when the object, though absent, is held out by the imagination before the soul. Then follows the action of the appetite, which is provoked by the imagination representing it as a sensual good. Then there is a consultation in the mind about the best way to accomplish it. Next follows the choice of the will, and finally the desire or full engagement of the will to it. All this can be done in a few minutes, because the debates of the soul are quick and soon resolved. When it reaches this point, the heart has been won. Satan has entered victoriously and displayed his colors on the walls of that royal fortress. But had the heart been well guarded from the start, it would have never come to this. The temptation would have been stopped in the first or second stage. And yes, it is easily stopped there, because it is in the motion of a soul tempted to sin as in the motion of a stone falling from the top of a hill. It is easily stopped at first, but when once it is set in motion, it acquires strength by descending. Therefore, it is the greatest wisdom to observe the first motions of the heart, to check and stop sin there. The strengths of sin are weakest at first. A little care and watchfulness at that point may prevent a lot of mischief. But the careless heart, not heeding this, is brought under the power of temptation, as the Syrians were brought blinded into the midst of Samaria before they knew where they were. I hope these considerations satisfy my listeners that it is important to keep the heart with all diligence. I proceed to point out those special seasons in the life of a Christian which require our utmost diligence in keeping the heart.